Hello, I'm Stephanie Ruff. And I'm Aviva Nabeski. We're the hosts of the Dressage Today podcast, where you can find us talking about anything and everything dressage related. Our conversations span the world of dressage from leading riders to local level dressage heroes. We're talking training advice, showing tips, and sharing stories to inspire your own dressage journey. So tune in, then tack up. Hello, and welcome to the Dressage Today podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by the Horse Care Loyalty Rewards Program. Later on, we'll have an interesting conversation with professional event and dressage rider, Chelsea Kennedy. Chelsea incorporates a lot of groundwork and mindfulness into her dressage program, and we look forward to learning more about that. But first, we're going to jump right into a serious topic. Aviva, you spend a lot of time teaching your own students and doing clinics in your area. What to you makes a good student? You know, Stephanie, that's just such a fabulous question. Um, you know, we talk a lot about how do you find a good dressage instructor or trainer or whatever, but we don't always talk about what makes a good student. And, you know, I, I joke that um, I have a certain teaching style and my, my students sort of self-select out at times because they, <laughs> they, don't, they don't work with me. And that is true because we all are individual in our styles. But I was I gonna think, say, I think that probably happens across the board. That happens with everyone. Yeah. Not everyone is suitable for everyone. everyone you know? Yeah, and a trainer needs to learn how to, how to train, how to yeah. reach people, how to educate. But there is a certain responsibility on the student as well, I think. And for me, there, there are a few things that make a good student. And I think the very first thing is the desire to learn. Um, we all talk about the student who comes week after week after week and has the same lesson over and over and over <laughs> again. And there's never any progress because the person is just making excuses and just going through the motions. Yeah. You know, I want somebody who is doing their homework. I want somebody who has humility, um, who has an eagerness to learn, who leaves their ego, you know, at, at the, at, at a, you know, <laughs> the arena and says, I'm here to learn not to be told that I'm good. Yeah. And, you know, I know I struggled with this as a student as well. I, I, I kid about the fact that I get, um, I get physically sick before my lessons. Um, and I get very nervous and it's almost as if I'm going to a competition and it's because my trainer's opinion matters to me. Yeah. I want to show her that I've been doing the heavy lifting behind the scenes, that I am improving, that I am understanding, that I am getting better. Um, and I, and I want to see that with my students as well. And it's not necessarily that they go from, you know, intro riders to FEI riders in a year. Right. I don't care about the degree of progress. It's that I want to see that they are making progress, that they feel happy with where they're going, that when things get scary or difficult, that they don't just throw up their hands and say, let's find a, a golden key to get around this, that they want to work through the difficult processes of learning and, and training. Um, you know, I, I, I joke a lot about the fact that dressage is hard. Um, you know, if it was easy, we would all go to the Olympics right? and we'd all be getting gold medals and we're not. Um, you know, it takes a very special 
um, rider to get there. It takes a very special horse to get there and there aren't a whole lot of them out there, but that's true in all sports. But what we can all be is better riders. And I, I, I think that the good student is one who comes into the lesson open. Yeah. Um, you know, we all make excuses, you know, oh, well, my leg hurts and I can't do that. Or, oh, well, you know, I'm whatever. And okay, make the excuse, but now I want you to try. Right. Um, I had a trainer at one point who did not allow me to ask questions. Um, mm. She would tell me to do something and, and I'd say, I don't understand. And she'd say, just do it. <laughs> And there were times that that was really wonderful because I remember one lesson I had with her and she said, just do it. And I thought that what she was asking me to do was one thing, but what she was asking me to do was the aids for a shoulder in. And I did what she told me without any expectations and I got a perfect shoulder in. Mm -hmm. And if she had told me I'm giving you the aids for shoulder in, I probably wouldn't have listened to her. Right. So being a student is sometimes knowing when to ask a question and, and also respecting when sometimes the trainer says to just, just do, do it. it. Stop, Stop thinking so much. Yeah, don't, don't think about it, just do it. Right. And a good trainer knows when to say those things. Exactly, yeah. But a good student also respects that the trainer knows what he or she is talking about and makes the effort to try, you know, it, None of us wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to ride badly today. You know, I think I'll yank on my horse a little bit and, you know, ride like a sack of potatoes all over the saddle and maybe jam my spurs into my horse. And I'm just going to look like crap. You know, we're all doing the best we can at any moment. Right. And some days we don't ride really well. Some yeah. days something does hurt or there is something emotional. And I know that Chelsea is going to talk about mindfulness and, you know, being present in the moment and that's all well and good, but we're human beings. And sometimes we're not always that good at it. And we do, you know, bring that I was sitting in traffic for an hour. Right. Um, and I'm really stressed and I'm really anxious, or I just got word that somebody I love and care for is sick and I can't get that out of my mind. Yeah. And, you know, being aware of that and being able to share that with the trainer. You know, I, I, I know my students pretty well. I mean, I, I got involved in a conversation online at one point about um, how an instructor becomes a little bit of a therapist at times. It is so true. And sometimes yeah. good, good, bad, or otherwise it, it and, ends and up, yeah. there's, there's a huge psychology sort of aspect there to it is. sometimes. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a trained social worker. I have a master's degree in social services. I, I had a private practice for a while. I did hypnotherapy for a while. And I find that all of this, all of the skills that I developed as a social worker, I use as a horseback riding instructor. Yeah. Um, you know, there is a certain degree of therapy and it's not that I want to know how you feel about your mother, right? What's going on in your, in your marriage. But I need to know where your fear is. Um, and I need you to be open to telling me things so that I can help you learn. And I know when I, when I work with a student for the very first time, one of the first questions that I ask is, is there anything that your horse does that scares you? And it's not that I wanna know that you're a chicken 
Yeah. It's not that I want to know that your horse is a jerk and, you know, tends to spend most of his, his ride on his hind legs. Um, but I want to know where your fear is so that I can help work around the fear. Because if you are so fearful of cantering that you can't, how can I help you learn to canter? Right. But if you can be honest with me and say, I'm afraid of not cantering, but I'm afraid of the transition because he likes to buck, then we can work through some ways to get into the transition without bucking. So I, I want a student who is willing to learn, who is honest about their handicaps, whether they be mental or physical, who is able to say when I say, it can be frustrating as I'll get at, I will say, um, you know, I say, do you, can you feel it? That's it. Do you feel it? And then I get the no. No. <laughs> and you know, I want to go wring your neck because you should be, because it's really good right now. And it's okay. Let's stop and let's talk about right. what feeling is. Because but at least they're being honest and saying, no, I don't feel it instead of just saying yes, because they don't and they don't want to, you know, address the fact that they don't feel it because, you know, they stupid. right yeah. exactly because they feel, they stupid. feel stupid. So, no, it is absolutely better to be honest and say, no, I don't feel it so that, like you said, then you can stop and and explain or, you know, do uh, you something know to try to get them. To feel you know, a lot of people have an issue when they're first learning about trot lengthenings. And, you know, I, I joke with them and I say, when you think it's good, that's when it's wrong. When you, <laughs> when you feel it and it feels really expressive, basically your horse is throwing its front end around and it's right. hollow. When you have a really good lengthening, it's a real subtle feel. Yeah. You're not really going to feel that. You'll feel your horse rock back a little bit you'll feel the horse take you a little bit, yeah. but it isn't this exceptional feeling that we all think it is. So being able to say to a rider, what you just got was great and having them believe me yeah. is really important to me yeah. as well. Um, I think that you have to have faith in your trainer. I want, I want a student who's gonna question me, but who's also gonna believe in me. Right. So I think there's a lot to being, a good student, but probably the most important part of it is the the willing the willingness to be to be bad at it, <laughs> and the and the willingness to be bad at it, and the desire to want to get better. <laughs> exactly. I, I started doing some groundwork with with Leo with my trainer, and what my trainer said to me was, "It's really hard, and you're going to do it badly for a while." Right. But the way to learn is to be willing and to be humble and to do it poorly until you learn how to do it well. Yeah. You know, we, we didn't spring forward as capable riders. We, we tend to forget there was a time when we learned how to post. Yeah, yeah. We were bad to begin with, but we've become better. And in some cases, we've become good. So a student is one who was willing to embrace the crap in order to move forward to the good. And I, th I think also, I, and I think you probably, we probably find this in, in dressage riders because we are, because of the nature of dressage being so meticulous and detail oriented, the people who ride dressage tend to be 
meticulous and detail oriented yeah. and a little bit of a perfectionist kind of thing. And I think because I've run into this in my own writing, being afraid to make the mistake. Um, and I've been told by more than one instructor, you know, like, go for it. Don't be, you know, be afraid to make a mistake because you're going to make a mistake, but at least you're trying and you know but in our desire to be perfect yes. we then don't do anything and yes. it's you know and I'm sure you see this a lot when you're judging because I got that a lot because I was always I'm I tend to be conservative because mm -hmm. I don't want to make mistakes so it's it's exactly what you said being willing to be bad and make mistakes and know that that's not the be all end all, you know, your horse is not going to go, well, she gave me the wrong canner aid two weeks ago. So I'm now not going to canner. Um. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and the only way that we and our horses learn to communicate with one another is, you know, we don't get angry or we shouldn't get angry with our horses when our horses make a mistake. Right. So we shouldn't be angry with ourselves with, when we make a mistake because that's how absolutely we learn. Right. And yet, and yet yeah. we, we it, some of it, you know, sometimes we do, or we get frustrated at ourselves, or we don't yeah. want to try because we don't want to mess up. Um, but mess, but, but that is part of the learning process. Exactly. So, you know, so yes, well, whew, okay. That was heavy for this morning. <laughs> okay. All right. Oh my goodness. But, no, but it is, it is, it is very true. And, um, you know, and, and I think a lot of, I think that the psychology aspect to what you say is very, very true, especially because a lot of exactly what you said, a lot of, a lot of the people that you work with or that most of the people out there, this is, you know, they're, they're serious about their horses, but it's not their profession. It's not their, you know, nine, it's not their job all day, every day. So they, they do bring a lot of other stuff to the table because they do have full-time jobs other, you know, and they do have families. And I'm not saying professional horse people don't because they do as well, but you know, this is their, in some ways, this is their like stress relief and their escape and stuff, but it's it, supposed to be fun. It's, it's supposed to be fun. So yeah. So learning how to, you know, try to let go of some of the, everything else that's weighing them down so that, so that you can be open to learning and, yeah. and relaxing and having fun and, you know, and all of that. And part of that's on the trainer too, to be able to, to create that environment um, of, you know, learning, but also being able to have fun and being able to laugh at yourself and take it seriously, but not so seriously that, you know, exactly. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, it shouldn't ruin your day if you have a bad lesson. Right. Although I'm not one to talk. Yeah, no, I was going to say, yeah, no, yeah. like good it lessons shouldn't. will make your day. Bad lessons will make you go. Oh, yes. But no, it shouldn't ruin your day. It, it, uh, you should, you, but yeah, you know, it, it's always a work in progress. Absolutely. That's that whole patience thing again. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yes, it is. I think that's going to be a recurring theme. <laughs> yes, I think so. But yeah, so I think, I think we can always, always strive to be better instructors and better students um, all the way around. And that makes us better horse people. I agree.
are going to move into our Ask the L segment. So this question um, is, is one that's a little more personal to you specifically, Aviva, and it comes okay. from Sue. Okay. You have a favorite test or favorite level to judge, and what is it and why? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, well, I, I have to say probably my, my favorite test to judge is first level test two. There, there's just something about the test that just has lovely flow for me. And I, I feel as if it gives me a real um, entry into the rider and the horse's training and basics. I, I think it's just a, a one of the best written tests that, that we have right now. I mean, I have tests that I don't enjoy judging as much. I have to admit that training level test three with that serpentine that nobody rides well is one of those tests, you know. <laughs> And, you know, first level test three with that leg yield off the rail is always really hard to judge because it's a very difficult movement. Um, but first two just feels as if it sets the riders up to do well. Every movement flows into the next one. Every movement is inviting. And I just think it can showcase um, the relationship and the harmony between the horse and rider in ways that, that none of the other tests do. Um, but if you were to ask me my favorite level to judge, um, and you know, I'm a graduate of the L program, so technically I can only judge at schooling shows from intro level to second level, although right. I do get people who come at third, fourth, and all of the FEI levels, as well as the eventing tests and you know, yeah. Western dressage and gated and all the rest of that. But <laughs> given all of the tests out there to judge um, and all of the levels out there to judge, I think the one that I like the most is second level. And it's because it is such a difficult level. It is. It, it, you know, it, I, we joke about it, you know, separating the ponies from the horses. Mm -hmm. um, it just is so challenging. It's the horse is finally now consistently on the bit. You're looking for honest collection, maybe not 100% of the test, but real collection. You're looking for suppleness. The aids are now a little bit more subtle. Things happen really fast <laughs> in second do. level. Yeah. And I it just, when you see a really well-written second level test, I mean, yeah, we all love watching Grand Prix and we love watching the Olympics. And, you know, most of us sort of look at that as, yeah, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> but second level is something that every, every rider and every horse can achieve. Yep. Truly can achieve. Yep. Are you going to get a 75%? Maybe not. But there isn't a horse out there that can't do a credible second right. level test if the rider does things well. Right. And so for me, judging second level is just a pleasure when it's done extremely well. Yeah. Um, I was scribing for um, one of my favorite judges, Ken Barbosa, um, many, many years ago. And a friend of mine came in the ring to ride a second level test and she rode an absolutely beautiful test. And at the end of the test, and it was a very high scoring test. 
At the end of the test, Kem turned to me and she said, this is a horse who is an absolutely perfect second level horse. There's no struggle. He's doing everything with ease. He's not quite ready to move up to third level. He doesn't have that level of collection or extension, quite that much suppleness, but this horse is meeting the challenges of second level in complete harmony with the rider. And that has stuck with me for more than a decade. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And making the move as a rider, well, and as a horse, making that move, that transition from first level to a good second level is really hard because there is a big difference, um, you know, in there's a big difference between first level and second level. So it's, it is hard, but I would agree that, that when you get it, when you, when you get good at second level, yeah, everything is really nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I would agree. And it, and it flows, but it's tough. And I've heard that from many, many people as well, that they're all horses and, and riders should be able to do at least second level. Like you said, whether or not it's going to set the world on fire. Um, but as far as the movements and everything, second level is, is doable for, it doesn't matter what your horse's breed is or size or, you know, anything like that. They can, they can learn to do all the movements of second level. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's just fun to see it when it's done well. Yes. Very yeah. good. Well, I, I would agree with you. Not that it matters, but I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we, we love the questions that we're getting. I'm sure you love them, right, Aviva? Oh, they're awesome. Yeah, yeah. they really make me think. <laughs> <laughs> hey, keeps you on your toes. So yes. that's good. That's good. But we love the questions that we're getting and we're always open to for more. So if you have a question, about showing or judging that you would like Aviva to answer, you can email me at sruff at equinenetwork.com or reach out to us on Dressage Today's social media. When we return, our conversation with Chelsea Kennedy. Keep your horse happy and healthy and get rewarded with free products all at the same time. Farnum, Horse Health Products, and Vitaflex Pro are proud to celebrate the partnership between you and your horse. So they created the Horse Care Loyalty Rewards Program. It's their way of giving back and provides an opportunity for you to earn complimentary full-size supplements, fly control, and grooming products that you use regularly. Receive one free product for every five purchased at any online or local retail store. View a complete list of eligible products at www.horsecareloyalty.com. Enroll and start earning your rewards. Chelsea Kennedy grew up in Connecticut, where she was a member of the Litchfield Pony Club, earning her HA certificate before leaving for college. After riding throughout college, she moved to Northeast Tennessee, where her eyes were open to some horsemanship ideas and tools that she had never seen before. She tweaked and utilized those tools as she expanded her business to a large facility in Virginia, 
bringing several horses up the levels in dressage and eventing before selling them for their owners and running a private client's business as well. After meeting her husband, she moved back to the Northeast, where both of their families are, and pared her business down to just a few clients while focusing on social work. She began exploring meditation, which became a huge part of her going forward. Over the last 10 years, and while having two children, her clientele has grown immensely, and horses have become her full-time business again. As Chelsea says, I am in this business in a much healthier and more sustainable way than I was in my early days, which allows me to help my horses and my clients so much more effectively. Chelsea is currently based in Wales, Maine, and is helping connect riders in Area 1 to the bustling world of upper-level eventing through her network of fellow professional riders, clinic opportunities, and her new home base at Unexpected Farm. Chelsea, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So kind of to start with, we'd like to find out a little bit more about your background. And so how did you get interested in horses and riding? Um, so I got to it a little later in my life than a lot of people. Uh, my family had nothing to do with horses whatsoever, except that my grandfather enjoyed um, thoroughbred racing, but nobody <laughs> rode in my family. Um, so I was in Girl Scouts as a young child and my mom uh, sent me to sleepaway camp. I think I was probably 10 um, and I got to do horse camp there. And so that was like that started the ball rolling for sure. Once I was in, I was in. And, uh, and when I got back from camp, she basically said, do you want to do dance lessons or do you want to ride? And it was no questions, definitely riding. And uh, from there, I just found a barn to, to basically work a little at so I could keep riding um, because we didn't have a ton of, of money and it's not a cheap sport, as you all know. And it just kept going. I joined Pony Club shortly after and, uh, and never stopped. It's, it's kind of funny. A lot of our stories are sort of the same. You know, you start, yeah. you get introduced to it, to it one way or another. You have a choice to make. The choice is horses. And, <laughs> and then it just kind of, it just snowballs from there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. Just takes over your entire life. Really, 100%. <laughs> and I wouldn't really have it any other way. You know, I've tried, I've tried my hand at a couple other things. And always, always, always come back to the horses. Yeah. So who were your mentors or people that have influenced you and your riding over the years? Well, I grew up in Connecticut, um, so in New England, and I rode with um, a then event rider and now dressage rider named Virginia Leary. Her and her husband, Jack, were big into the uh, eventing scene in New England for a lot of years. Um, and so she really helped me get my start. And then I, I was fortunate to fall in with um, a trainer named Steve Milne, who was from the West Coast originally as uh, a show jumper and an event rider. Um, and he, he coached our pony club and he continues to be just one of the best horsemen I've ever known. He is one of those people who just never, ever stops learning. He's like an encyclopedia of historical info and current training ideas. And he never stops collecting information. Um, and he really instilled in me 
the idea that the training process is always more important than how things look in any, you know, one small moment um, to other people. So that he was a huge, huge influence in my, my riding work and continues to be. Um, and then I lived in Virginia uh, for quite a lot of years and got to compete against and really keep my eye on people who were coming up in the eventing world, like Boyd Martin and Will Coleman and Doug Payne and Buck Davidson. Yeah. And then obviously all of their predecessors were there in those competitions too, you know, Philip Dutton and the O'Connors and Bruce Davidson. Um, so that really had a huge influence on, on my, you know, kind of young career on my own as a professional. And then luckily for me in the past several years, I've been really fortunate to be connected with Tick Maynard and his wife, Sinead. Um, and working with Tick really, you know, turned my eye again from where Steve started it um, even more fully to some of the best original horsemen in the US like Ray Hunt and Tom Durant and Buck Branneman. And uh, lately even, even more introductions to some amazing modern horsemen like Tick himself, the Pirellis, Dan James, Jonathan Field. So there's been like a lot, a lot of great influences in my life and they've kind of all been connected in small ways, um, but it's been, you know, a huge evolution. So has, um, have you always planned on being uh, an equine professional or was there, you, you mentioned you tried to dabbled. Kept, yeah, I kept coming back to horses, but yeah. have horses always been your plan? Yeah. You know, I think the people who knew me when I was growing up in pony club would have said, yes, like there's nothing else she was going to do. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, my mom was really adamant that I go to college and I was ready to just do horses straight out of high school, you know? Um, but I'm really glad that I went to college. There was not an industry that I was like, yes, I really want a degree in that because when I, I finished college, I knew I was just going to do horses. So the only other thing that I just loved in my life was art. And so I actually got my BFA and oh, then, wow. yeah. And then, um, and then when I, uh, was doing horses for a while, um, I came to a point where I needed needed a minute. <laughs> um, I think we might talk about that at some point here. I'm sure it'll come up, but I dabbled then for quite a while in social service and, and worked in um, some group homes for young mothers and their children and ended up doing a lot of parenting education around the time that I actually was having children myself, which was um, poignant and really useful on like a personal level and also you know, something I'm glad I, I spent some time doing in my life. That's quite a, a change from a BFA to social services. I know, right? I know. Yeah. But it's so interesting, like all, you know, between horses and the social service work and art, it all, you know, there's this, there are common threads through yes, all of Yes, there them. are. Yeah. And it's been really fun to kind of pull things, you know, from each area of my life into others, you know? Yeah, it's all connected. So you, you had a, a pivotal turning point. Um, you, you were with dabbling with horses and, and then you went into social services, but then you went back into to riding and you started looking at things a little bit differently. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so my turning point actually happened when I was a working professional in Virginia. 
Okay. Um, I was riding a really lovely mare named Lady Lucy for an awesome owner that um, I had down there. And she was coming up through the levels and we were doing our first training level. And I made just some really not good choices for her out on cross country. I ended up getting hurt. She lost her confidence in both mm. me and in herself. And I really felt just unbelievably terrible about it. I mean, I was, you know, beating myself up in a way that I knew really wasn't healthy, but I also didn't know how not to do. And I remember I was driving home uh, from that particular event, my ankle, you know, badly swollen and feeling like, ugh, like I just really messed up. And I, I had this, like, it was almost like an epiphany. It was like this flash, this moment where I really recognized that the entirety of my self-worth in that moment and in life in general, my like value as a human being was being wrapped up so completely in whether or not I was winning, like whether wow. how I was doing at competitions and I knew something had to change. Like I just knew I had to, to find a healthier way because what I was doing was not landing me or the horses I was riding in any good place. That's quite an epiphany. And that's yeah. really pretty insightful as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I feel really fortunate that that happened in my early twenties. <laughs> and so <laughs> I was like, you know, at a place where I felt like, oh man, now I feel like I have to start over in some way, but also I was young enough to, to really have time to make a change that I knew I needed to make because what I was doing was not sustainable. Yeah. So what did you do? Well, um, that's a big topic. <laughs> um, you know, that incident led me to really question some big things in life and in the world. You know, the idea of self, the idea of ego, the idea of suffering. And I just went searching. Um, you know, I started reading a lot of books. Um, eventually, uh, I found my way to a Buddhist retreat center that was near me. I, I was doing a lot of reading of, you know, the ideas of Eastern cultures and Buddhist philosophy. And I found a community near the Charlottesville, Virginia area founded by uh, a man named Tenzin Wangil Rinpoche. And I did a retreat there around my birthday in, in May of 2007. And it was like, it was really life-changing. Um, I ended up, you know, really connecting with that community and ended up um, in a, an organization called Three Doors that was founded by the same person, which teaches non-secular meditation practices to communities and people all over the world. Um, and they run something called the Three Doors Academy, which is like a two and a half year program um, that really really asks people to dive in deep and um, use these practices and tools to examine how we move through our life, you know, and how we relate to the world and the people around us and our communities. And it, it was really revolutionary. Like it really changed um, how I move through the world and relate to myself and other people and it's continued to evolve, you know, in my personal practice over the years since. I'm still really connected to that community, which is 
uh, a, like a wonderful base of support for me. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, in turn, that really just changed my ability to be present with horses and relate to them without excess emotion and without, you know, delving too much into the past or too much into the future. I can meet them where they are. And I can do the same for myself and my students um, in a way that makes the work I do now not only sustainable, but actually you know, joyful and you know, something I want to be doing daily. Well, that's sort of what social services is all about, isn't it? It's starting where the client is. It's starting yeah. from now and yeah, being present exactly. in the now. Yeah, yeah, that's that's you know what I meant that there's this common thread. Like when you can, I think that when you learn how to be with yourself and be with the present moment a little differently than a lot of people generally do, it affects your whole life. You know, it affects how I am with my children and my husband and my clients and the horses and you know, the people I worked with in social service. So yeah, it's all, it's all connected in that way. So you are an event rider. You obviously you've been an event rider and you still, you still do that, but you also enjoy dressage and you have, as part of this whole journey and some of the names you mentioned, obviously you do a lot of groundwork with your your horses and your training so how were you first introduced to those principles and what drew you to them yeah so uh steve the trainer i mentioned before that i grew up with he always taught me these basics that i thought were just um normal like that everybody taught their horses good boundaries and mutual respect and i thought that these were just skills that were part of everyone's repertoire um, if only I know, I know, I feel so lucky looking back that, that he was my, one of my first influences because, um, you know, when I started running my own businesses and I would look around, I was like, Whoa, this is not how everybody <laughs> relates to horses. Um, and then when I ran my first farm in, in the Northern corner of Tennessee, the the owner of that farm um, dropped a few more pebbles in that pond and she gave me a few more principles and ideas and she gave me my first rope halter you know that was really uh, another little like turning point where I was like huh there's more here to know and it slowly just grew from there um, until I got a horse called unexpected uh, or Eddie we called him in the barn He's actually who my current farm is named after. Um, He just needed something different. You know, he needed a different approach because of where he was at. And it really called upon me to increase my skill set and look at other ways to relate to him. Um, And then I saw Tip teaching at uh, Equine Affair several years back. And, you know, I was like, this is the stuff I'm doing. And here's a person who's connecting it to his work in the event world. And here's a person who's bridging that gap between like these good foundational basics and these understandings of horses that not everybody, you know, gets taught when they're young. And he's connecting that to, to the competition world. And I got really excited because, you know, it it was becoming a little more mainstream in the way that I was trying to make it in my own work. So, yeah. Right, because for a long time, it, it, it was very, um, I guess, a little more Western oriented and a little yeah. more like, this is what you do. You do 
quote unquote natural horsemanship and yep. it doesn't they they didn't necessarily show how it could apply to your riding or right. or to competition like what you said and how it yeah. how it kind of crossed over so um you know and i mean apparently you were introduced to some of those ideas like you said without really knowing it and i kind of the same way my mentor taught always taught his horses yeah boundaries and mm-hmm and personal space and all that sort of mm-hmm. thing it wasn't it wasn't a thing though it was right it's just the way we did it yeah right. yeah exactly so you sort of were doing it long before you really knew you were doing it um but so did you think it would apply to your sport or you know did tick kind of help really show you how that could happen Well, you know, I don't, because I grew up and it was just what we did, I didn't understand enough about basic animal behavior and training principles. Like, like it was just what we did, you know, there wasn't like, um, too much theory behind it. Right. Um, and, and when I saw things that were like more complicated, like when I would watch like some, like a Liberty trainer or something, I, it all seemed like very magical, like, whoa, how are they making that happen? But I knew it was something I like wanted to be able to do because the connection between the horse and the rider or the handler was so apparent, you know? Um, and then, you know, once I educated myself about some of the idea ideas and theories behind the techniques and the, the magic, basically, it just made sense. Like it wasn't magic. It was just understanding how horses learn. Um, I always felt like from the beginning with the stuff that, that um, Steve instilled in, in my basic handling of horses, like those skills around leading, standing at the mounting block, working on the line, that I had like a bit of a leg up on riders who had to lead the horses with chain shanks or like be tossed up onto a moving target at the horse shows. Um, And that seemed to prove true in my riding career and for my students, you know, like um, I brought a lot of difficult horses along and had a lot of success um, moving up through the levels. And, And I feel like uh, my students had that same kind of leg up. Like our horses were calm at the horse shows they could walk with us quietly. We could get on without there being a fiasco. You know, they were more relaxed and able to work out in competition. So I saw the practical application, but now I know more and um, know that it really, really does. Well, the concept that you're a team and that there has to be a relationship. I, I, I struggle with this with, with young people who want to just get on and ride. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't want to do the whole horsemanship. They don't know how to handle their horses on the ground, how to lead yeah. them. You know, your your horse has to lead correctly with you or you can get hurt. Yeah, um, exactly. And that, that relationship that you have on the ground does translate on their backs. It 100% and, does. And people don't get that. So it's brilliant that that you have incorporated all of that into your into your business model, into your students and the people that you work with. And it's such a bonus for your horses as well, because, you know, horses are herd animals and they need somebody to lead. Yeah. And most of them don't want to be the leaders. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, like they, they need, you know, that sense of understanding what the job is and how to answer the questions um, so that their anxiety stays low. You know, they're prey animals and they are always 
on the lookout for things that are going to get them. And so if we can help their world be very understandable, then their anxiety level stays low and their ability to learn is, is more present. Yes. So you're an event writer, but you really love dressage, which is very unusual, Chelsea. Yeah. <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about that. Most event writers do the dressage to get through it so that they can go, you know, run fast and jump high. But you see the dressage as a little bit more than that. Yeah. I mean, when you get good scores in dressage, you're more likely to win at your event, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love finishing on my dressage score and being at the top of the leaderboard the whole time. You know, why not start there? It makes sense. The Olympics Um, just showed that as a matter of fact. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You know, I, and I think even as a young person, I've always been really amazed by the seamlessness of it when it's done well. You know, I feel that way about the Liberty work. I feel that way about a good hunter round. Like I want all my show jumping to look like that. Um, I just really love the way in dressage, the connection between horse and rider is super evident when they can show like a quiet, relaxed, but also like athletic and powerful test under the pressure of competition. Like that doesn't just happen through muscle that happens through finesse and through a mutual understanding. And I think it says a lot about the basics that a rider has cultivated with their horse um, when, when they can put in a test like that and then still go out and gallop cross country and then bring it all back together for show jumping. It's nice to see. And actually I think, and you probably can speak to this a little better than I can, that since the format of eventing has changed to the shorter format, dressage has become more important. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I a hundred percent think so. You know, obviously the the type of horse that um, we're seeing out yeah. at the upper levels of competition has really changed. And, and because of the shortening of the format, we're seeing, you know, quite a good many warm buds at the very top who maybe couldn't have run the long format. Um, and their athleticism is, is uh, huge and they can put in dressage tests, you know, with the best of them out in the straight dressage world. Um, yeah. And so why not, you know, why not embrace that and really show off that ability to, to do both amazing flat work and jump around really well. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we talk about with classical dressage or straight dressage versus eventing dressage is that dressage riders do only one sport Mm -hmm. and they specialize in it. And that's what they do. Whereas an eventing horse is a triathlete. And the thing that's so exciting about eventing is that there are three very different disciplines. And I know um, Jimmy Wofford talks a lot about the fact that an event horse cannot do dressage in the same way that a just dressage horse does, because the, the idea of submission is a little bit different, that Mm. a dressage horse has to be submissive to the rider and listen to the aids where an event horse has to at some point, particularly at the upper levels, think for himself or they run into trouble. So how do you reconcile that with your more um, natural horsemanship approach and your groundwork approach? How do you teach the horse to be able to listen and be on your aids in the sandbox, but then be more independent 
out cross country? You know, that's a really great question, actually. I love that. Thank you. So, um, so one of the first things that I teach all the horses on the ground is curiosity. Because, you know, horses being prey animals, they, their instinct when something is new or different or frightening or erratic is to leave, right? They yes. want to get out of there. So, but they can't do that if they're going to run around a cross country course, or even if they're going to do well in a dressage arena. Right. So they need to become curious about their surroundings and want to investigate. And that curiosity can be cultivated and can grow into like tenacity, you know, like, um, when, when you have a horse that at first is worried about the way, uh, like, you know, a particular jump looks and you can teach them that investigating, going in, sniffing, touching, looking at, you know, being around those things is actually interesting and not frightening. Then that, that skill slowly expands until they're like, Ooh, what's that? Oh, I want to go see that. Let's go over there and check that out. And that can build and build and build. And so they're like, let me add it, you know? And, um, I don't think that, you know, it's one or the other, like you can have a horse that's incredibly responsive and respectful to the aids and, and very submissive to the aids, but, but you can also signal them when it's time for them to go be curious and investigate and be a little tenacious and say, all right, it's on you. Check it out. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, does. That's that's a really interesting way of looking at things. You know, we we have a tendency we we dressage riders tend to be a little bit wimpy about stuff. And so <laughs> we're into avoidance. Yeah. Um, I love that idea of, of cultivating curiosity and making the curiosity something that they can feel proud of and strong yeah. in. Yeah, um, I've, I, I've got a, a, a woman who recently became a client of mine who was on a horse and her, uh, that she's been partnered with for quite a long time. And they're you know, strictly dressage riders and their bubble, their like world had gotten so small because she was afraid and the horse was afraid yes. and everything just shrunk and shrunk and shrunk until like she was wrestling with the horse to try to keep its head down. So it wouldn't look at anything and therefore wouldn't be scared. And there, they, you know, they could ride on a 20 meter circle in the middle of a ring. And, and she was sad about that. And the horse was worried. And so we like stripped it back and we taught it how to be curious. And now she's like, She's riding in the outdoor with the brand new mirrors being installed and I'm weed whacking and there's a you know lawnmower going and you know the horse is coming in and, and they're like loving life again, yeah. you know, and, and the horse just needed to be taught that he was fine to check things out. Right. And uh, horse and rider are much happier for it. That's great. That's, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I did a, I, I judged a fix a test yesterday and there was a lot of stuff going on during huh? during the rides you know the tent kind of lost part of its roof and there was somebody <laughs> who was mowing and there was a lot of traffic and you know it was interesting because the way that we all approached it was sort of um you know oh all of this stuff going on and the horse needs to learn and experience it and get through it and trust the rider that it's yeah. okay yeah. Um, but we didn't really experience it, I think, in the same way that you're talking about. And I think the way that you're talking about would make it so much more manageable and so much better for the yeah. horse and the rider. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it takes time. Like you have to be able. It's interesting because it feels like it takes a lot of time up front, but it's amazing how quickly things like snowball. Yes. Once the horse has that 
that feeling, you know, like you want to take that time because you're going to get fat and get to where you actually want to be way faster if you just take it. Yeah. That's, that is very good advice for all of us in many things. Yeah. <laughs> so that patience, patience, Aviva, patience. Yeah, I don't know the, the meaning of that word. <laughs> so speaking of dressage, you've got, you have Laura Graves coming to your farm for two day clinic, which I'm very personally, I'm very excited about because I am going to be up there and we're going to be filming for, I'm jealous. I know. <laughs> Come on. Come on. <laughs> our video subscription site so what made you know first of all Lara is obviously a big name she's an Olympian and and um you know so what made you what about her stood out to you have you ridden with her before or you know how how do you know her how do you get her up there and yeah and what are your expectations yeah, um, I'm really fortunate that one of my current clients had a very well-bred young horse that we decided um, was better suited for the straight dressage track than for eventing. Um, and so after I put some good basics on him, um, this woman, Leslie, had a connection with Laura from a clinic she had uh, gone to audit. And so she connected with Laura about him and Laura agreed to take him on. So oh, wow. while he was with her, I got to go down and ride him a few times to see that what they were working on and where things were at in case the owner decided to keep him as a dressage ride. Um, so while I was down there, I got to connect with Laura a bit and commiserate with her about like, you know, our New England roots. Um, and she's, you know, a lovely person as well as a lovely rider. Uh, and so... I've got this amazing new facility here in Maine, and I'm working really hard to make sure we can bring quality education up here. Um, Maine is a bit of a, you know, far off destination for a lot of really good clinicians, and it's where my family is, and I want it to also become um, a destination for the region. I want my farm to be a place where people are wondering what's coming next. And I think Laura coming uh, is a nice way to put us on the map. So I'm really excited to have her up and uh, have such, you know, a prestigious dressage rider here in, in just the first year of our, of our new farm. My last question for you is something that we like to ask everybody on our interviews. And you've alluded to this a little bit throughout your entire, all the, all the questions that you answered, but what do you feel makes a good horse person? <laughs> That's a huge question as it well, is, isn't it? It is a huge question. So. <laughs> um, well, and bear with me. I'll try to give a useful answer without going on too long. Um, you know, I think the first thing is that they need to understand that horses exist in the present. They don't exist in the past or the future in the way most people do. And I think the ability for people to be present is really difficult. Like we spend our time thinking about the past and thinking about what's coming next more often than we do just exist in, in the now. And um, that ability to be present with a horse and meet them where they are is, is so essential for good work. And I think when you watch the best horse people in the world, you can see it. Like they go into that zone when they're with their horse and they are nowhere else. Um, and I think you know, the meditation work that I do and the tools that I give my rider that riders that come from that space um, really 
promote that quality of presence that I think is 100% necessary. Um, without it, you can't have good feel for what the horse is, is trying to do. And you can't have good timing to help the horse understand what you want through, you know, the appropriate release of pressure at the right moments. Um, and you also can't see when the horse is trying, if you're not present, you have to be able to catch them when they, when they put the effort in and attempt to give you the right answer so that you can show them they're on the right track. Um, and unless you're really, really present in the moment, you, you can't do that. Uh, I think a really good horse person knows that they don't know everything and that they don't have the one right answer and that they are always, always seeking to learn. And I think on that same note, you know, they work really hard to cultivate better work in themselves, better feel, better timing, better position, and that they really work to find the joy in those small victories, as well as the large, you know, they're psyched when they win a competition, but they're also psyched when their horse, you know, figures out how to move away from a specific pressure. And they celebrate that like 1% better in their people and in their animals. And it's just obvious that they're in it for the love of the horse. Oh, I so wish I was from the Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you're always welcome in Maine. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this has been a really kind of enlightening, yeah, conversation. And um, I'm very excited to, to meet you in person and to go up there and we'll be filming with you as well. So we'll have more, we'll have more from Chelsea coming, coming very soon. Uh, but thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. I look forward to seeing you soon, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Chelsea. This has been such a pleasure. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to know you better, even if it's only through the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great, Aviva. Thanks. Many thanks to Chelsea Kennedy for talking with us today and also to our sponsor, the Horse Care Loyalty Program. Thanks for listening to the Dressage Today podcast. If you've missed any episodes or to subscribe, go to Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Learn more and read in-depth training articles at dressagetoday.com, or you can visit our subscription video site, ondemand.dressagetoday.com. Be sure to give us a follow on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. Happy riding, and we'll see you at X. The Dressage Today podcast is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of Equine Network, LLC.